Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we have Blockstream's Director of Research and longtime Bitcoin developer, Andrew Polstra. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Nick. It's great to be here. So, Andrew, tell the audience about yourself. Uh, people that are in Bitcoin know your name from being a part of Blockstream for many years. But tell us about who you are, when you got into Bitcoin, how you got into Bitcoin, and what you've been doing since then. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so I got into Bitcoin uh, back in 2011, originally, is when I first joined the Bitcoin community and started playing with it. Um, like a lot of people, maybe most people in that era, uh, this is in the middle of Ron Paul's run for, uh, for the uh, presidency and uh, or for the Republican candidacy. Um, and kind of, I got swept up in like the Ron Paul, like libertarian, you know, like we could be freer, we could have freer money kind of thing. Um, somewhat ironically, the Ron Paul people never really liked Bitcoin, right? They were largely gold focused and, and quite suspicious of Bitcoin, maybe reasonably, um, because it was this electronic computerized thing. You know, gold is, is hard, right? You can touch it, you can trade it, you know if you have it, that, that is there. And since a lot of those people were kind of from the older crowd, um, they, they were naturally quite suspicious of electronic computers. And we'll actually talk a fair bit about that later on this podcast about this distrust of computers. Um, but as a young person, kind of getting sucked into that, I heard of Bitcoin, wasn't put off by it being on the internet, wasn't put off by it being on computers, and, and got quite interested in it. <clears throat> and also, <clears throat> also because... I was a little bit technical. I was also pretty skeptical that Bitcoin could work. Like the way that people were describing it, like seemed just really implausible. So when I first got into it, I was kind of like assuming I would be able to just knock it over, right? Like so the, the, way, the way people were describing this, where like you were doing some sort of hashing and like you were like trading the hashes and like making a chain of, of something. Um, it all seemed quite implausible, but in a way that was very tempting. For somebody who was was attracted to the ethos of it uh, and also had a bit of free time because I was in college and uh, and was willing to kind of poke at the technicals there. So I joined in 2011. Uh, over the next couple of years, um, I kind of just played with it and would hang out on IRC and, and talk about it and was, was not actually super technically into it. And then sometime around 2013, when I started graduate school, uh, I joined the, uh, the LibSecB, the Lib LibSecB 256K1 project, which is a cryptographic library that is uh, behind Bitcoin's uh, digital signature, all the signature verification, signature generation, stuff like that. Um, and Greg Maxwell on IRC suggested that I take on some, some job there where we were trying to come up with some more optimized assembler code for ARM processors. So the LibSecB already was a replacement for OpenSSL. Right, which is like the general crypto library. This is before Heartbleed and anything. Like it was, um, you know, people had mixed feelings about OpenSSL, but it was the standard, right? And so LibSecP already was this new crypto library. It was seven times as fast at the time as OpenSSL by just focusing specifically on Bitcoin's curve. And we were trying and have been trying for the last many years uh, to improve on that 7x number. Um, and I don't know what it is today because OpenSSL has, has kind of fallen off our radar as a benchmark, but, uh, but we've continued to make things faster. And Greg Maxwell suggested that I could join um, and work on that, which at the time for me, as I felt like kind of an outsider and, and not somebody who really was deep into the Bitcoin technicals and stuff, I was, I was just kind of 
caught off guard that he thought I could do that. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I joined the project. I tried working on this for about five minutes. I never actually, I never actually did the arm assembly thing because I don't know uh, arm assembly. Uh, but I did join the project and then contributed to a number of other optimizations that have gone into libsecp as well as a few larger things that um, that people have heard about, in particular confidential transactions, uh, which later went into Monero and became the basis of, of Mimblewimble and stuff like that. Um, and also Taproot, I became a, a fairly big part in the early days of Taproot, devising the scheme where you could have multiple scripts that would um, that could all be kind of committed to in a single public key, and the public key would still work as a public key. That's really the, the trick with Taproot, is that we, we no longer have this distinction where if you're doing a normal wallet thing, you have a single key, and it looks like a normal wallet with one key. Or if you're doing something more complicated, if you're doing escrow, if you're doing some sort of two or three, if you're doing like sidechain pegs, if you're doing lightning channels, etc., those look very different. With Taproot, we're able to kind of make them all look the same, at least in the happy path, and get a, and get a privacy boost as well as a scalability boost there. Um, and then over the years, I just kind of worked in the background, right? Like working on LibSecB, I contributed a little bit, very little to Bitcoin Core. Most of my contributions were through LibSecB. Uh, just kind of playing with the algebra, trying to find ways to shave off a percent or, you know, a percent would be a lot, like half a percent even. Uh, of the runtime for things like signature verification and, and signature generation. So that's roughly, and somewhere along the line, I became uh, I became the head of Blockstream Research, which prior prior to me, Blockstream Research was just Blockstream. It was a much smaller company, and we were all researchers. Um, and Greg Maxwell was our CTO. He stepped down as CTO and asked me to take over. And I said, well, I don't want to do like business stuff. You know, can I just can I just do the fun parts of being CTO? And so we created the research director position so that I could have just the fun parts of being CTO. And here I am today. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by River. Make sure to check out river.com today or the link below in the description. River is our preferred place to purchase Bitcoin. Now, when you're buying Bitcoin, guys, there are several considerations. Number one, should I be using an exchange? Is the exchange custodying their own Bitcoin? Is the exchange using platforms to custody that we don't know? Is the exchange leveraging its Bitcoin for other purposes? Well, with River, we know that River does not use leverage of any kind. River also uses its own multi-sig solution so that your Bitcoin are not held by anybody else. So it's a very important thing to understand about what River offers. Now, River also has Lightning Network integration and a lot of other really exciting features. Go check out river.com today. That's excellent. And thank you for sharing your story. Now, um, I do want to talk today about your new project, which is about paper computers. We're going to get into that um, in a little bit. But before that, Tell us a little bit more about the early days of Bitcoin and how you identified that Bitcoin was a solution to a problem that was real and existed. And what drove you, what about Bitcoin drove you to actually give up your free time? And then la the last part of that question is, what were other developers 
and cryptographers that you admired at the time saying about Bitcoin relative to previous efforts at digital currency that gave you the confidence to actually steer your career, your intellectual capacity into Bitcoin? The reason I ask this is because when talking to students about what it is about Bitcoin that makes it so special 15 years later, it is always interesting to know what someone that found Bitcoin at age two or at age three was thinking. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so the one thing that kind of immediately was visible was the, the ability to just do online payments without surveillance and censorship, right? So at the time, um, if you wanted to transact online, we'd gotten, you know, past the, the 1990s era of like, you know, you never put your credit card on the internet. And now like everybody puts their credit card on the internet kind of thing. Uh, we had PayPal. PayPal was a large company, but PayPal was already um, quite aggressive in, in censorship. I knew multiple people personally who had, who had struggled with PayPal, where if you're running a business and it's... Um, somehow you, you trip some of their flags. Like usually you don't even get an explanation, but they will frequently just freeze all of the funds in your business. And then you have to spend months or years trying to get your money back. Um, meanwhile, your business is failing and so forth. And then even practically, even if your money's not locked up, you just want to buy things on eBay or whatever. You got to go through PayPal and then like half the time it doesn't work. Um, in fact, even in the last year, I think in 20 maybe 2021, 2020, right? I tried to use PayPal on eBay and I gave up and I had to phone a friend and ask him to buy this thing for me on eBay. And then I gave him cash because we, we couldn't make it work. Um, also around this era was, I think, the WikiLeaks, if I'm remembering my timeline correctly. WikiLeaks right? this was, when was WikiLeaks 2010. First became a thing when, 2010, perfect. So there we go. So I showed up in 2011. This was still big news, right? The WikiLeaks was 2010. Um, Julian Assange became public enemy number one. Or, uh, or the world's greatest hero, you know, depending who you wanted to talk to. Um, and PayPal, sorry, Visa and MasterCard froze or, or blocked all donations to WikiLeaks. And so Bitcoin was the way to get money to WikiLeaks. And this was like a very practical thing, right? I mean, like this was an actual kind of, um, this was an entity that was trying to receive funds that had no way to do it, and Bitcoin gave them away. And also, it was a, a political statement, right? Like here was Visa and MasterCard at the behest of the, the U.S. government to enforce, you know, arguably U.S. national, you know, whatever, whatever they believed about what they were doing. They were using their position as a payment processor to censor transactions because the, the, they were on one side of the political divide um, and, and people trying to spend were obviously on another. And you could, by using Bitcoin to give money to WikiLeaks, Almost even if you didn't care about WikiLeaks, you could you could give the finger to these censors and say like you know what you don't have that power you know you may think that you know and maybe you were this intermediary who had this ability to prevent this, and you're not and we can just go around. And there was kind of a similar dynamic with the Silk Road, right? The original Silk Road was still operating when I when I showed up in the Bitcoin space, um, and this was before all of that exploded. And then there was like a sequence of scam markets and stuff. And and again, the existence of the Silk Road even if you didn't want to use it, even, even if you weren't trying to access drugs or, or whatever, as a political thing, it was kind of amazing that this could exist. And that was very personally exciting to me to see this technology being useful 
in real life where you really could just like log onto the Silk Road and send money there and send money back. And then, you know, if you did, I'm sure you're on a million watch lists and stuff, but you could do it and nobody could stop you, you know? And I knew a number of people personally who would do this and, and they would receive packages in the mail. And like, it, it was a tangible thing, right? Where there was this censorship regime in payment processing that was becoming increasingly real and uncomfortable as the internet became a bigger part of all of our lives. And then here was a way where you really could get around it, where you were you didn't have to go underground, you didn't have to be a political activist or anything. You could just obtain the software and, and use it. So that was that was a big thing really, was that like there was this tangible way to bypass all these censorship structures. Um, and then the other big thing about Bitcoin that, that kind of occurred to me once I got, once I, I became more familiar with it, is that Bitcoin is a bearer instrument, right? If you hold Bitcoin, you really are holding it. And the only way for somebody to confiscate your Bitcoin, assuming your, your computer doesn't get hacked or something, is basically for them to physically confiscate, you know, your, your hardware wallet or your backups or, or whatever sort of devices you're actually storing this on. And this was a distinction. This is a little bit too philosophical for me. Like when I first got into Bitcoin, I, I, that wasn't ever something that I thought about. I didn't think about the distinction between a bearer instrument that you actually have versus, you know, money in the bank, which is actually, you know, just a claim on, on money that's physically at the bank or a stock certificate, which is actually in your broker's name uh, because otherwise it would be very difficult to trade. Um, this distinction as, as I, I, kind of grew into the Bitcoin space, became much more real and, and much more important to me, especially when we look at um, the history of, of finance and, and what's shown up many times in your podcast, people talk about FDR seizing all of the gold, right? And there's many other examples of that throughout world history of governments or local warlords or even like sometimes kind of mercenaries or corporations just physically stealing things. And if your money is just a claim in somebody's database, they don't have to show up and steal it. There's no fight or anything. They just like press a button and just like PayPal freezing people's funds, uh, that's frozen. And with Bitcoin, we go back to the world. We, we can still use the internet. And in fact, we can use the internet in a much less censorship prone way than we would with credit cards. But we don't have to replace our real money with claims to do it. We can continue to have a physical, uh, tangible representation that has to be physically stolen if it wants to be stolen. Do you have any pre-Bitcoin uh, uh, applied cryptography heroes or, or any figures from cryptography history that you admire, look up to, um, and, and really adhere to their work? So amusingly, not really. I got into cryptography um, from, from a, a, an historical perspective, right? So I first heard about modern cryptography in the context of some people cracking World War II like Enigma codes. Um, and there was a news article about this, like maybe in 2004 or 2005, right? And, um, and here we are, you know, like, I guess that's 60 years after the war had ended, right? And then still there were these messages that were encoded in these 60-year-old codes, you know, prior to the invention of information theory, prior to like everything that we call modern cryptography, but somehow held up. And I thought, that's like, that's really cool. You know, like this, this cryptography thing is, you know, um, you, you, I mean, you can do pretty amazing, like decades long or century long things with this cryptography thing. So I got into crypto from that perspective. And then I learned about the more modern history from the 1976 New Directions paper, which kind of defines uh, modern cryptography. This was, um, uh, Whit Diffie and, uh, uh, Martin Hellman published this paper in, in 76. 
And the history there is actually quite interesting because this was the first paper. We not only consider it to have kind of created public key cryptography and modern cryptography, but politically publishing this paper without Department of Defense uh, funding, which is what they did, was kind of an unprecedented thing. Right up to that era, we kind of moved away from the World War II era where like actually the US government was employing all the cryptographers to a world in which the DOD was funding all cryptography research and in exchange they kind of got, you know, a veto on what got published so they could censor whatever they wanted kind of thing. And Diffie and Hellman said, well, we don't want to, we're just going to go around the censorship thing, we're just going to publish this. And a number of people, including their advisors and other people at Stanford where they were, were kind of like, what are you doing? Like, what's the point of publishing cryptography? Why does anybody need cryptography except for a government? So, like, you're, you're doing some weird censorship protest here for something that, like, will never have any effect on the world because ordinary people don't need to know about cryptography. Um, and this, you know, this is in the 70s, but it has a very Bitcoin feel to it, doesn't it, right? The idea that, that maybe ordinary people could use cryptography. Um, and also the idea that these very practical, like, real-world things, like Bitcoin is, is everywhere in our lives now, that these could start out from some kids kind of making a political protest about censorship or about surveillance kind of thing. And that's, that's very exciting. Um, but when I got into crypto, I didn't know any of these people, right? I didn't know, like, I was sort of learning about the cypherpunk movement throughout the 90s and 2000s, and, and later I would meet several of these people. Um, and the cryptographers who I would meet at school were kind of quite suspicious of, of Bitcoin. So, so despite, you know, the Diffie-Hellman, you know, like F-U-D-O-D, let's, let's go publish this without censorship. Um, in fact, today, most public cryptography is done, or, or most cryptography in public academic journals is done with DOD grants or other government grants and stuff. And they no longer, I think, have like, they don't have like a veto on, on what gets published and what doesn't, but they certainly have the ability to decide what they give grants to and, and just kind of steer the direction of cryptography. And for the most part, most cryptographers, I don't know about most, but certainly a large segment of the academic cryptography community is kind of comfortable with this, with letting the DOD kind of steer what, what it is that uh, they're working on and what it is they're focusing on. And the set of cryptographers who's trying to do real-world kind of Bitcoin things was very small when Bitcoin started. It's larger now, but it's probably still a minority of the academic crypto world. Um, so it really wasn't until Bitcoin was a big deal that, you know, I, I got to, you know, meet people. And then these people didn't become celebrities or heroes in my mind until after I'd already met them. And that has a different, like, you know, it's, it's not really a celebrity effect. And, and so. Sure. Well, I, so that's, that's the story. The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Now, we all have talked about the dangers of letting your coins stay on an exchange. The importance of withdrawing your Bitcoin to self-custody is really part of understanding what Bitcoin is all about in the first place. Bitcoin is about avoiding centralized financial institutions. And with Foundation Devices, we are showing you guys an amazing device. It's called the Passport. And with the Passport, you can get your coins off of exchanges into custody with this beautiful, easy to use device. They also have an onboarding service that will help you get settled with your device, get comfortable with it. 
get to understand what it is like to actually take custody of your Bitcoin. So check out foundationdevices.com today and make sure to pick up a passport and use the promo code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your device. I want to recommend this book to people. Um, Stephen Levy, uh, Crypto. This is written in 2001 and covers the stories that Andrew is uh, discussing here and the tale really of how cryptography went from being a military technology exclusively to a hybrid military and private enterprise and then private enterprise was able to break free with some degree and there are a lot of parallels to Bitcoin in there. So I'd recommend people go check out that book if they want to know more about the history. Now, Andrew, let's get now uh, to today, your current project, Codex 32. Explain it to us at a high level. What are paper computers? And then we can dive a little bit deeper into the details. Sure. Yeah. So first off, this is this is a project. Um, so this is this is a technology project. This is a way to um, manage uh, seed words or, or secret seeds that you use for Bitcoin. You may notice it is a book. It is not like a CD included or something. This book is the project. Um, and so what this is is it's a way to do what's called Shamir secret sharing, where if you have your seeds, um, if you have a, a, a BIP32 seed, like your seed words or whatever, that stores all of your coins, there's a way to split it up into multiple pieces so that you need, say, like three of the pieces. Any three of the pieces together will reconstruct. Reconstruct your original secret. But if you have only one or two, there's no information whatsoever. So it's not, not even just like breaking it into little pieces where you, know, you gradually, the more pieces, the more you learn. Here, there's, there's a cliff, right? You learn nothing, 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 and then everything, um, which is, is generally what you want in cryptography, right? You don't. When things are, are on a slope in crypto, that's you, you got to worry, right? Because then you have to use heuristics to, to decide things. So there's a scheme called Shamir Secret Sharing. If you split things apart, if you recreate things. So now instead of having a single seed, you have a multitude of shares. And the shares themselves then, well, rather than storing your seed is like a series of words, you would then store the shares, basically, is, is your storage problem. And so the premise behind this book is that you have these things, these paper computers, there's a word called wobbles, and let me show you one of these paper computers here. We've got all this wonderful artwork and stuff. Um, so you cut these out, um, and you can assemble them. We've got three different ones here that are used for different purposes. Okay, and then this one's cool because it's double-sided. You actually... Uh, you first rotate it here, and you find, it may be difficult to see on the camera, but I'm choosing a symbol up top. And once I've chosen that symbol, I flip it over, and this is like a decoder ring. And so you could actually just use this, even if you don't care about the Bitcoin stuff, you could use this particular bauble um, as a decoder ring. So if you're, you know, in grade school and trying to hide stuff from your teachers, this is, this is what to do. And so these are very easy to assemble. So they come in the book. We've got these nice drawings. You can kind of cut these out. You fold them and stuff. Uh, the one piece of extra equipment that you might need are these these little brass fasteners that you get, you know, at any any print shop or or whatever. So you cut them out. You take an exacto knife. You cut little windows out. You fold these together, um, and then you have these sheets that rotate relative to each other, and you're able to do computations. And so the cool thing here is that using these paper computers, you can start from your your bare seed. In fact, you don't even have to start there. One more piece. Um, imagine you're generating. You're generating a secret, right? Historically, in order to, to generate this seed, this should be something that's uniformly random. It should be at least 128 bits, maybe 256. Um, and 
to get this data, you kind of like your hardware wallet might generate it for you or your computer might generate it for you. More recently, there are these various schemes called Diceware. Um, so for example, on the cold card, um, one of these guys, when you're, you're generating your seed, you have the ability to roll dice and type the dice into there. Um, we have a way where you can directly generate by just rolling dice. Let me try to get the light to work here. And again, it's in, in the book, which you can you can buy at the Blockstream store, or you can just download this. Is, the whole book is open source. Um, what you can do is by rolling dice and working through that worksheet, you can actually get unbiased, 128 bits of unbiased randomness. And the cool thing there is that this is true even if your dice themselves are biased. So something that you, you may be aware of if you play tabletop games or, or um, or into gambling is that actually most dice that you buy are biased. They have manufacturing defects, there are little bubbles in them. Um, so if you go to a game store or something, you want to buy transparent dice that you can see all the way through. And even so, when you look at them, you'll see most of them actually do have little air bubbles, and you've got to kind of sift through the, the container a whole bunch to get ones that don't have air bubbles. And then, uh, and this is just manufacturing defects. This is ignoring kind of conspiratorial things where, you know, like you've got some dice that you're generating Bitcoin seeds with, and then somebody like sneaks them into the oven when you're not looking and changes so, so that it's heavier at the bottom and then they'll come up a different way and um you know you can you can maliciously bias dice right um but also even absent malice so you generate your seed using that worksheet it will debias it will fix any imperfections in your dice kind of thing and then you can generate shares from your seed i got to generate the shares first and then the seed using this this random scheme and now you have a uh, seed that you can generate Bitcoin addresses and stuff from where you know the exact provenance of the randomness. You know that um, you know there wasn't some malicious hardware wallet that's giving you the same seed as it gave to everybody else, or it's giving you a random seed that maybe was encrypted somehow with, with you know, a, a secret that only the manufacturer knows, or even some rogue employee at the, the manufacturer knows kind of thing. And you can create as many shares as you want, up to 31. You can reconstruct your seed from any two of them or any three or any four. You, you get to choose the threshold, basically. And you do this entirely by hand. And I'll talk in a moment about why you would want to do this by hand, but, but you can. And the process involves filling out these large worksheets, right? You kind of spin these, you fill in worksheets. Let me show you one of the worksheets real quick. Um, this is the checksum worksheet. Uh, which I'll explain in a sec. So you use these paper computers, you fill in the worksheets, you do this. Okay, um, there's one more feature that I, I want to describe. So when you do a whole bunch of hand computation like this, it's kind of a tedious thing, right? It'll take you, depending on what you're doing, anywhere from you know five to 10 minutes to, to one to two hours, you're probably gonna make mistakes, basically, right? Because you're doing this tedious thing over and over, you know, you're copying down things, you're filling in worksheets. And the way that you can avoid mistakes is by using something called a checksum. So you take your share data and you extend it. So your share data, if it's 128-bit seed, is going to look like 26 characters. And you add another 13, so 50% longer. Uh, another 13. And by doing so, if you make up to eight errors, it is guaranteed that you will notice that there, there, there are problems. Like you won't be able to pass this checksumming process. And even more interestingly, if you make up the four errors, you'll be able to correct them. Okay, this is this is called an error correcting code. And you can do this, you can do the error correction, the error, um, you can create the checksum, and you can verify 
and you can correct small numbers of errors entirely by hand. And the benefits of this are twofold. So one is, if you have a checksum, you can actually do this stuff by hand, because otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to. You'd make mistakes, and then something would be wrong, and then your seeds are wrong, and then game over, right? Well, the checksum lets you make sure that what comes out of the process is, is actually correct. Um, and then the other thing is, and here's where the real benefit starts to come in, is that if you've got these seeds, and you've stored them on some sort of like crypto steel kind of device, and this is a crypto steel tube, you can open it up. I like these ones because you can, there's a real seed, real seed data on here, but I can still put it on camera because you can't read more than one at a time. Um, you, when you store these over, over long periods of time, years or decades or, you know, I mean, who knows how long these, these uh, Bitcoin seeds could last, right? Then you want to make sure that that data, you know, stays intact, that its integrity is intact. So you don't want to, you know, open it one day and find that, like, there's some tiles missing or they're wrong or something and then kind of, like, wonder when did that happen? You know, how many are wrong? You know, maybe this is, maybe one of the tiles is eroded and you can't really read it anymore because it's flattened out or, you know, maybe you just find it in a weird location and you wonder, like, did the kids do that? You know, like, did they do it 10 years ago? Like, who knows? So when you're storing this stuff, you want to be able to kind of, you know, every year or maybe every quarter or, you know, depending how paranoid you are, you kind of want to check on these things, right? You've got this offline seed data. It's great that it's offline, right? It's in a physical piece of metal that somebody has to steal in order to steal. But you want to verify the integrity of this. And now you kind of have a catch-22, right? You can either load the data onto a computer so it can verify your checksum and check that it's intact and produces the right thing. And then you have to, you know, worry about that computer, right? And if you're doing this every year for decades on end, it's not like this one computer. I don't have to worry that this ledger is not compromised. I have to worry that the ledger that I buy in five years is not compromised. And maybe I don't like ledger anymore because they, they leak too much, so I get a, a jade saying that I have to worry that that's not compromised. And then, you know, it's a cold card or, you know, it's a cold card 2055, you know. Um, you have this continual, like, as you go through hardware, as it dies or it gets replaced or, you know, whatever, you have this continual trust requirement. So either you bite the bullet and trust this continuing parade of hardware forever to not steal your data or leak it somehow or somehow compromise it or damage it, or you don't verify it and then you worry that, like, maybe the data is degraded. Maybe when you created it, you, like, swapped two tiles and didn't realize it, or maybe it, you know, went out of your sight, or maybe... You know, who knows? But you just don't, you don't really have any way of determining when or how or what happened to it. So by using paper computers, and here's where I'm going to shift gears a bit and talk about why, why anybody would want to use paper computers, right? So it's, it's cool to me as a technologist that we can do this, right? But, but I think somebody watching this is kind of like, what? Like, don't. Uh, the benefit here is that if I want to verify the integrity of these shares, you know, it's, it's been a year and I just want to like make sure that, you know, like actually they're, they're intact and I want to do that every year. What I can do is I can go grab one of these worksheets here. I grab these paper computers and maybe I've lost them so I can just download and reprint it or, you know, maybe I have a few copies of the book in my safe kind of thing. Um, I use the paper computers. I fill out the worksheet. The worksheet now has a whole bunch of secret data on it. But if the worksheet passes, if you, you do this whole like hours long process and but one hour, one hour long process. And at the bottom, you get the, the word secret share 32 needs to come out. You're doing all these transformations on your secret data. And the way that it works is you get this secret share 32 appears at the bottom as if by magic. If it passes, your data is intact. 
right? It hasn't been degraded. Uh, there haven't been, basically there haven't been any errors or if there are, you know, it's like a very structured malicious error, error. like somebody must have like actually replaced one of your tubes in order for this to pass, but there, there to be errors kind of thing. So, you know, all the usual wear and tear stuff where like, you know, maybe like your four-year-old sticks it in the oven and you don't realize and you like bake it a hundred times and then you find it. Um, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff, right? And um, so this is pretty cool. And all you have to trust are the papers. So you've got this one sheet of paper that's got your secret date on it. And you just got to destroy that. Um, and destroying paper is something that, you know, we're, we're pretty familiar with. Um, there are a number of ways you can do this. Uh, the way that I would recommend today is probably actually you put the paper in your blender with like a cup of water and just run it for a minute. And that will turn the whole page into this, this gray gloop um, where there's nothing recognizable. Um, and then you can decide which of the plumbing places in your house you're willing to pour that into um, or just leave it in your garden. I don't know. Um, other ways to destroy it, of course, you can shred it. You might worry that if you're filling out a bunch of worksheets, your shredder, you know, people can reconstruct that. You can try burning it. Um, burning, you've got to be a little bit careful. I mean, not only to, to not burn your house down, but also to do it properly, right? There's a, a famous MacGyver episode in which somebody is trying to burn a, uh, uh, an incriminating piece of paper. Uh, I think it's from season six called Live and Let Learn. Um, and then MacGyver finds it and then using like tools from the school's photo lab, he's able to like reconstruct the data and flatten it out. And, you know, like he can, he can read the data. Because if you just burn a piece of paper, you know, it'll turn black, but you can actually still read what's on it. You know, you, you got to like fully combust it, turn it into ash, like smash up the ashes and like maybe mix those. And anyway, the blender will do it. So, okay, but this is something that we can all intuitively understand, right? Like I'm not sitting here like giving this incredible like tech technical lecture where I'm like, oh yeah, just get your electron microscope and then like dissolve your chip in acid and then remove this and then you can like see that the data is destroyed kind of thing. These are ordinary tools you have at home. Like you've got a piece of paper, it's the only place the secret data is. Uh, you don't have to worry that like your hardware wallet stored it on disk or that like it stored it and then the developer tried to delete it but actually the flash chip has some wear leveling logic and decided to copy it to somewhere else. And so now like it's stored, but you, nobody knows that it's stored. You don't have to worry that it's leaked out of side channels where like it's, it's drawing a different amount of power from your USB bus as it's working on it. And then uh, something malicious on your computer can watch that power draw. And then no, it's just a single piece of paper and you destroy the paper and it's gone. And you don't need to worry that um, over time, this process will change or there will be compatibility difficulties or, you know, any, any new hardware is always just the same printout, right? And if you've got, you know, like, maybe you want to do this every year. Well, you can have a hundred of those printouts. And if you've got a hundred of those printouts and you're safe, you know, they're not going to change. Um, and they're really, they're just grids, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to, to vet these. Um, they're, they're human visible grids. So the trust story for these, these, um, or maintaining this data is very different. It's much more humanly understandable. Um, it's a better trust story because there's all these attacks that literally can't happen. But in some ways, more importantly, it's a trust story that people can understand where, you know, the Ron Paul people who like really did not like all this computer stuff and then were kind of suspicious of Bitcoin for this reason can say, you know what, here's a process that I can follow where I know exactly where the secret data is. It starts on the steel tube that you have to steal to get the data. It goes into the piece of paper and the paper goes into the fireplace kind of thing, right? Like it's, it's a very straightforward model. And using these techniques, you can not only 
you know, verify the integrity of your data. You can reconstruct your original secret. Um, so you can bring all the different tubes together to actually put it into a hardware wallet. Uh, you can reshare them. So if you've, if you've split your secret into a bunch of shares and you've given them to various people and you want to change that, um, you can produce new shares kind of thing. Um, one of the more interesting things you can do is you can use this for encryption. So one thing I've used this for is I have a, I had for a long time, I had a, a single seed that just it wasn't split or anything. And it was sitting in uh, a place that I uh, used to live somewhere in Texas. And I wanted to move this to my parents' house in British Columbia in Canada. And this put me in a very uncomfortable position where once again, I was either going to put this onto a computer and then encrypt it and then carry it across and hope that you know nothing bad happened with the computer. Or I could have the seed word where I was carrying this physical tube through TSA and through customs. And if anybody confiscated that, um, then they would get all the Bitcoins and steal it, right? It's a very uncomfortable position, right? And kind of the theme here is that you really don't want to use electronic computers if you can avoid it, because then like all bets are off, you know, like statistically, you're much better off having your stuff on a computer than in a customs agent hand, but you don't know with the computer and there's nothing you can do to clean it up because when you try to delete stuff, you know, everything from your operating system down to the, you know, the flash chip in your, your drive is conspiring to not allow you to actually delete the data. So what you can do though, is you can do a two of two secret split using these, these papers. And now what you do is, is assuming that your endpoints are secure, right? So the place I, I was living in Texas was, was secure in that, you know, there were no TSA agents there. Um, and then certainly my parents' house in BC was, was secure. So what I did was I took my secret, I split it into two pieces using these baubles, using these exact baubles. And then I had two shares, which together represent the secret, but by themselves, neither of them did anything. And then I made two trips. So I carried one of the shares across the line, and that got through TSA fine, it got through customs fine, as it will 95% of the time, right? No problems. And then I went back and got the other share. And the cool thing is that if anything had happened in transit, if on either trip customs had stopped me and confiscated the tube, then I would have just destroyed the other tube, gone back, and redid the secret share. Because every time you split, you have an independent that is completely independent. And because knowing one half gives you zero information, remember it's, it's a threshold, right? So one of them gives you zero, and then both of them give you all of it. I don't have to worry that, like, even if I'm stopped a hundred times in a row, I just need it to work once. And all those hundreds of times that, uh, that one of my tubes got confiscated, I didn't leak, like, a little bit of information. I leaked zero information, so it doesn't add up, and there's, there's no problem there. And so doing this, I was able to transport this without using computers and without ever exposing myself to risk in transit. Um, and similarly, I mean, I could have used a mail to do this. Um, it's a little bit harder to tell if your mail's been, been tampered with or spied on, but like, um, if I wanted to send like one tube through FedEx and one through UPS or something, like neither of the boxes seem to be ripped apart or the tamper-proof stickers, you know. There's lots of things I could have done here where... I have this, this very high, very tangible assurance where the security model here is, you know, the kind of cloak and dagger stuff that we know from Agatha Christie and that we can, you know, for, you know, as long as we've been hominids, we've known how to physically store physical objects, you know, we don't have to deal with all of the crazy, um, abstract, impossible to verify security issues that come with electronic computers. So, 
that's kind of what you can do with all this, as well as kind of the, the reason that you would want to do this, um, is so you have this tangible trust model. That's fascinating. And how do you combine, let's say, in for practical purposes, the best way to combine someone who already has their Bitcoin stored on a hardware device with this book that you have and in basically ensuring your security practices in a way that you still have your hardware wallet, you it, you have the device there, but then you have this method of uh, checking your data or even splitting the secret in some way. How do you suggest uh, the interaction between these two things? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so one thing I will say is that even with the paper computers, which are great for long-term storage, to actually use the address, when you want to generate addresses and when you want to spend coins, you need to have a hardware wallet. So unfortunately, there's no way um, that we know of, and people have been trying for a number of years, there's no way we know of to eliminate the hardware there. But then your question is, suppose we already have coins on a hardware wallet, and you've got a backup, maybe it's, you know, maybe you've just got some seed words. So there are kind of two answers here. So one, the correct answer is that you should generate a new seed, load that into a new hardware wallet, and sweep your coins. And this is generally whenever you're switching wallets in Bitcoin. And people don't want to do it because it costs fees and it requires they bring their keys online and it requires they interact with the network and deal with this kind of risk. But it minimizes the amount of handling that they're using secrets. It minimizes the number of different places the secret data is, right? You don't have the same seed on two different devices and so on. Um, and it's safe. Assuming you're not compromised, you're not going to flub it and then like destroy your data kind of thing. So that, that's really the correct answer, right? Is that you generate a new seed and then you uh, um, do the whole process and sweep your coins. But there's another answer that I think a lot of people would be encouraged to do. Um, but they would encourage themselves, and honestly this is what I did, where you can take your existing seed words, you can re-encode the seed words in, a, um, in the format used by these paper computers, and then you can just re-split it. So rather than doing the process in which you, you randomly generate a bunch of shares and get a new, a new seed, you start from a seed, you generate a couple of new random shares, you combine them all and you can derive more shares from this, is what the process looks like. And this is definitely possible. One scary part of it is that when you're converting from the seed word format, whether this is uh, BIP39, the, the standard BIP39 seed words that we're familiar with, or SIP39, which is, is much nicer but still a little bit scary, um, the, the conversion process is still scary, is what I mean to say. The risk is that you have to basically convert your words into a binary format and then into this, this different format here. And during the conversion, there's no checksum. And the reason there's no checksum is that BIP39 and SIP39, so BIP39 has no checksum. There's really like no, no telling whether your data just by itself, you can't really tell whether the data is valid. You've got to like derive, you got to derive some addresses and see if they, they have the right addresses. SLIP39 has a pretty strong checksum, uh, a very strong checksum, but you need a computer to verify. And if you're doing this all by hand, then you know, it, it's, it's difficult. So you have to convert it. During the conversion, you have no um, kind of no issue. If you make mistakes, then you're kind of like, there will be a mistake and, and nothing's going to check it. So you need to convert and then you want to convert back and then make sure that after converting back you get exactly the same things and, and that you didn't make symmetric mistakes somehow. Then once you convert, you can use the processes and, and um, okay, once you convert, then you're going to have data that's actually a bit of a weird length. And the reason is that 
both BIP39 and FLIP39 have a little bit of extra metadata associated with them. So FLIP39 has this, this checksum, um, as well as a bit of header data, so you'll get something that's longer than 128 bits or longer than 256 bits. BIP39, I said it has no checksum. It has something that looks like a checksum. It takes some space. It won't necessarily detect any errors, but you know it, it takes up some space, so you get this extra, extra link. So you need a special version of the worksheets. So the worksheets in this book are not going to work for me for you. You're going to need like longer versions of them. But then you can do the splitting process, and then you can reconstruct it. And the benefit of doing this is that you don't need to take if you're just starting from a backup that's offline. You don't need to bring anything online, right? And that's kind of why I did it this way. And we haven't yet nailed down a way, like a standardized process. So the, the other issue you're going to run into is that this whole process is a little bit of an ad hoc kind of thing. And if you're familiar with how this is constructed technically, it's kind of an obvious process. But there are still a lot of little decisions that you make. And there is a risk with any sort of scheme for managing um, secret data that if you come up with your own scheme for storing stuff and for splitting stuff up and, and doing everything, then you are more likely to lose your data than to have it stolen, where you lose your data just by losing track of how your scheme works. Or maybe you don't write it down so clearly, or maybe you write it down and it's lost, or, or um, you know, for whatever reason, you need to be present for all this to work, and then you forget it, or you hit your head, or you die, or whatever, and, and then nobody can figure out how to piece this all together. So right now, the manual conversion process that I'm describing is in that kind of cluster of, of things that are bad ideas because it's just too much custom custom nonsense. Um, we would like to standardize it somehow. So I'm, I'm discussing with a few other people, is there a way that we can come up with a standardized process? Because I think this is something that a lot of people would want to do. And we would like to have a specific spec that you can point to that's you know on the internet and that multiple people know about. But because it's so like such an ad hoc kind of like multi-stage thing um, and because we really like ultimately think it's a worse idea than just sweeping your coins um, it's difficult it's difficult to create standards right where you've got a lot of little decisions to make and like your heart's not quite in it because you don't believe it's the right idea um, but I do think we should create such a standard I think that something will exist um, and if we don't if we don't make it probably somebody will because the uh, kind of the temptation or the benefit of doing this without having to take anything online, I think is actually a pretty big benefit that for some people probably outweighs the uh, the risk associated with, with not just going through the network. Andrew Polstra, Director of Research at Blockstream, thank you so much for sharing your history in Bitcoin and this new book, Codex 32, and the idea around paper computers and how they can be used in secret sharing. Andrew, tell the audience, please, where they can find you, your work, and this book online, and we'll absolutely provide the links uh, in the description as well. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Uh, I have no social media. I'm not on Twitter. You can find me on IRC if you, uh, if you poke around a bit. Uh, but the places to find the book are, um, and that's not entirely, you can go to the Blockstream Research Twitter handle, which is BLK Research, um, and then you'll, you'll hear a little bit about this. The book you can find, uh, there's a website that I maintain called secretcodex32.com, where you can download the full book 
Um, I would suggest that like even if you buy it, like these these are so pretty, you don't want to cut them out. So even if you buy the book, you probably want to download it and just print it yourself. The ones that you're going to cut up. Um, you can download the book there. You can find more information. Um, you can find you know some some FAQs, some interactive uh, versions of the worksheets, some explainers, stuff like that. Um, as well as like if you're an estate lawyer and you find this book and uh, you're wondering what the hell's going on, I have a page there for you. Um, one day, one day that will be a concern. Um, and then, uh, of course, we're selling this on the Blockstream store. So if you want to buy a hard copy like this, um, that's all nicely bound and, and in full color on a high quality paper, then uh, that's the place to go. So thanks very much. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you guys next time. Special thanks to River for sponsoring this channel. Purchase Bitcoin without any fees when you use River's DCA feature. River has become our trusted source of accessing the Bitcoin market because they don't use any third-party custodians. This is a very, very important thing to understand. River is not using another company to store the Bitcoin for them. They have their own multi-signature solutions, which means that they have designed their own way to make sure nobody else has responsibility for the Bitcoin for the time that you have River hold your Bitcoin for you on their platform once you have purchased it. So go check out river.com today. Thanks for sticking with us as always at the Bitcoin layer. Subscribe to our channel. Subscribe to our Substack at the bitcoinlayer.substack.com so that you can follow along our latest research and analysis. Mm -hmm.